Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been, it what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been done already. In the ages before us, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. morning. Yes, welcome. Uh, you may be seated. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and I'm really thrilled to get to be with you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. We're really glad that you're here this morning. And uh, normally on Sundays, I'm at our Brookside campus. I get to serve as the campus pastor there. Uh, but today, I get to be here with you all at Shawnee, which I'm really, really grateful uh, for. And so uh, it's exciting to, to be here. I'm glad to see all of your faces this morning and wanted to just give you a, a quick update on uh, Paul Brandis. So many of you are already eagerly anticipating Paul's arrival. Paul is going to be taking the role of campus pastor here at the Shawnee campus. But uh, I have, for some of you know this, maybe others of you don't, but I have a, a, a deep personal connection with Paul. And that is because I was Paul's first boss at Christ Community. So many years ago, uh, Paul was one of our pastoral residents, and he served those two years as a pastoral resident uh, with us at the Brookside campus. And then uh, we liked Paul so much, we hired him to be an associate pastor uh, at our Brookside campus. And so I got to work with Paul for, for many years there, and we eventually had promoted him to an executive pastor, and he was leading our staff team at Brookside. And so you can tell we love Paul. We, we had him, we kept him, uh, we promoted him, and then, you know, he, he has a little sojourning there in Sterling, Kansas. Uh, but now we are bringing him back to Christ's community. And so if you have not yet met Paul, uh, just know you're in for such a treat. He's an amazing leader. He's an amazing pastor. He's a gifted teacher. So we're really excited for Paul to come. And I know for some of you as well, you have been praying for them, uh, that they would be able to sell their house in Sterling, as well as find a house here in, uh, in the Kansas City area, in, in the Shawnee area. And I have good news on both fronts. So they closed on their house in Sterling this weekend. So that's done. And they found a house here in Shawnee, just about, I think, about eight minutes uh, to the west here of the campus. And so they close on that, uh, Lord willing, on May 25th. So they're under contract there, which, as you know, trying to find a house in this market is incredibly difficult. And so God really blessed that process, and they are under contract um, on, on a great house uh, just a few minutes away. So yeah, you guys can clap for that, for those of you who are excited uh, for Paul coming 
uh, and have been praying for that. Thank you so much for your prayers. Uh, again, if you have Paul's uh, number or email, maybe send them a note and congratulate them on that. They're, they're really excited. So that puts us on track for the Brandises to be here in June, which is what we were hoping that sometime, you know, early, middle June, that they would be able to be here and Paul would be able to begin uh, his work. So I just wanted to give you those updates this morning. And again, just as someone who's worked closely with Paul, uh, who is a, you know, has become a dear, dear friend of mine over the years, I'm so thrilled one, that he's coming back to Christ's community, um, but that he gets to serve here. And you are going to be so blessed um, by him and his ministry uh, here at, at the uh, Shawnee campus. So um, let me now just pray uh, for us as we begin to thank God for the Brandises and their home, uh, and as well as to kind of center ourselves around uh, the scriptures this morning. So let's do that. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have heard and answered our prayers. First, for a campus pastor for this location. For Paul and Ashley, for Bevan and Owen and their whole family coming here, Lord, we are grateful. And two, thank you for hearing and answering our prayers for a home for them. And, and one that's so close to the campus and is just the right thing at the right time. We see your fingerprints all over that, so we're so grateful. And now as we turn to focus our attention on your word and the passage that we heard read for us this morning, would your Holy Spirit be at work, opening our hearts and minds so that we might receive your word and that it might bear much fruit in our lives? We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, again, happy Sunday, everyone. We're really glad that you're here this morning. And, uh, you know, when we started this passage, I don't know how closely you were paying attention to the Scripture reading, but we're in a new book, right? We've been in the Gospel of John. Now we're moving to Ecclesiastes, and we're calling this new series Life Up in Smoke. Um, kind of big idea that everything is futile and meaningless, and no one's going to remember you after you die. So uh, go in peace this morning. Uh, just be comforted by that, that fact today. And, uh, and actually, maybe you felt a little bit like this when you were hearing the, the Scripture reading um, being uh, played. This is the kind of, wait, are we reading the Bible this morning? Or is this, uh, is this something from Jean-Paul Sartre uh, on kind of the meaninglessness of, of life? And, you know, actually, we postponed this sermon series. We actually had this sermon series ready to go uh, exactly two years ago. <laughs> we had graphics made. We had everything ready to go in April of 2020. A great sermon series called Life Up in Smoke. <laughs> and, you know, we just thought as pastoral leaders that that might uh, be a little too on the nose. And so we pivoted. We did a series in the Psalms instead. Uh, we thought, okay, I think people get that life is, is a little bit uh, tentative right now as we were all locked in our homes waiting for the zombie apocalypse to start. So we pivoted, but we knew we wanted to do this series. So now two years later, just as everything is starting to look up and go back to normal, we just wanted to take this opportunity to remind you it could all fall apart <laughs> again at any moment. So just that's where, that's where we're at this morning. And of course, we all sort of know that at one level, don't we? that life is tentative, um, that our existence uh, could, could change at any moment, that, that we, we feel this kind of vapor, uh, this, this futileness, this meaninglessness of life. But it's not just us that knows that. I want to point out significantly this morning that the Bible knows it too. And one of the reasons that we can trust the Bible is it actually tells us the truth about reality. 
It's not just that we experience this, but the Bible records this as well. And not in some kind of just uh, sort of quick acknowledgement and sort of then a Pollyanna sort of a, a response of just cheer up, but it's all going to be fine in the end. No, the Scriptures are actually willing to sit in the frustration, the sadness, the confusion that often attends life outside the garden. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes in many ways is really all about. It tells us what it's like to live outside the garden, outside of the life that we were created to live. It's actually a reality that Edvard Munch, the artist who painted the screen, that painting we looked at a moment ago, uh, felt deeply. I think that in many ways he was a kindred spirit to uh, Kohela, the, this teacher of Ecclesiastes. Um, he was born in Oslo, in 1863, and the majority of his art was produced kind of around the turn of the, of the 20th century, so kind of the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was a time of a lot of change and cultural upheaval, and he experienced a lot of sadness in his life. He lost his mom as a, as a young boy, maybe uh, seven, eight years old. His, his father wrestled with deep uh, mental illness, and so a lot of his work captures this, this kind of sadness, um, the futility that he experienced in his own life. And the screen, the picture that we, uh, it was probably his most famous work that we looked at just a moment ago, really sort of captures that. One of the things that's interesting about that painting is you see there's sort of two figures in the back of the painting who are sort of walking away, just strolling along as if everything is okay. But then this, this figure in the foreground is saying, everything is not okay. Uh, don't you see the world in which we live and how broken and messed up it is? He actually wrote at the bottom of one of the, the prints of this that I felt a great scream pass through nature. And you almost kind of see the sound waves reverberating through this figure. The figures holding their hands over their ears, the sound waves of the scream vibrating through them. And this painting, uh, this painter, Edvard Munch, much like the teacher here in Ecclesiastes, shows what life is like under the sun, what life is like outside the garden. And we're going to look at a few more of his paintings this morning because I think they help us capture the feel of Ecclesiastes. Because Ecclesiastes is a, is a lot of, uh, it's a very poetic book. And so it's not just interested in communicating certain propositions, ideas, but helping to capture a feeling so we want to look at some of these paintings to help us capture the mood, the feeling of Ecclesiastes, what life is like under the sun. And, and we want to ask the question, is there any hope? And, and this is what we want to look at today. And as we do that, we're going to, we're going to kind of do that in, in uh, three uh, signs and then one hope. So we're going to look at three signs that we're living life under the sun. And then we're also going to look at one hope that we have. So three signs we're living in the sun and one hope that we have. Now, Ecclesiastes is one of the wisdom literature books in your, in your Bible. And if you haven't turned there already, I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible with you or if you have your phone, you can type in Ecclesiastes if you can spell it. Uh, I always struggle to spell Ecclesiastes, but into Google. Google will help you. And, uh, and put the numeral one in there and you'll find Ecclesiastes. But if you're in a Bible, you just kinda, if you open your Bible to the middle, you're going to end up in probably Psalms or Proverbs. It goes Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes is right after um, the book of Proverbs. It's part of the wisdom literature in the Bible, along with the book of Job as well. And the first sign that we see here in this passage that was read for us this morning, that we're living under the sun, is that progress escapes you. So the first sign is this, that progress escapes you. 
And uh, you look at this, you, I think the Christian Standard Bible captures these verses 1 through 4 well. It says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains the same forever. And before we go any further in looking at this kind of idea of progress escaping us, we need to ask two really important questions that are going to be key for the whole study that we're going to do through this book. And those questions are, first of all, who is this, this teacher who we hear speaking here? And then second, what is this idea of futility or meaninglessness? Or I think the ESV that we heard read earlier has the idea of vanity. What does that word mean? It's the Hebrew word havel, and it actually occurs 38 times in the book. So if we're going to understand this book rightly, because it's a, in many ways it's a hard book to understand. It causes us to need to think and rethink over and over. What is this message? We need to know really clearly those two things. Who is the teacher, and what is this idea of meaninglessness or futility? Uh, and the Bible Project has a great video, I think, that helps us with those two questions. So take a look at this. The book of Ecclesiastes, it's part of the Bible's wisdom literature, and it opens with this line, the words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now in Hebrew, the word Kohelet, it means someone who has gathered people together. And in this case, it's to learn, so it's often translated in English as teacher. And the teacher is said to be a son or a descendant of King David. And so there are different views about who this figure might have been. Many think that it refers to King Solomon, others to maybe one of the later kings of David's line, and still others think that it's actually a later Israelite teacher who has adopted a Solomon-like persona as a teaching aid. Whichever of these views is correct, the key thing is to recognize that the teacher is a character in the book and is different than the author of the book, who remains anonymous. So we do hear the teacher's voice for most of the book, but it's actually a different voice, the author, who introduces us to the teacher in the first sentence and then at the end concludes the book by summarizing and evaluating everything the teacher just said. So the author is someone who wants us to hear all that the teacher has to say and then help us process it and form our own conclusions. So what does the teacher have to say? Well, the author summarizes the teacher's basic message at the beginning and right at the end, and it's hevel, hevel. Everything is utterly hevel. Now, most English Bibles translate this word hevel as meaningless, but that doesn't quite capture the heart of the idea. In Hebrew, hevel literally means vapor or smoke, and the teacher uses this word 38 times in the book as a metaphor to describe how life is, first of all, temporary or fleeting, like a wisp of smoke, but secondly, also how life is an enigma or a paradox. Like smoke, it appears solid, but when you try and grab onto it, there's nothing there. So there's so much beauty or goodness in the world, but just when you're enjoying it, tragedy strikes and it all seems to blow away. Or we all have a strong sense of justice, but all the time bad things happen to good people. So life is constantly, it's unpredictable, it's unstable, or in the teacher's words, like chasing after the wind. Hevel. Now that's kind of a downer. So why is he saying all of this? 
the author's basic goal is to target all of the ways that we try to build meaning and purpose in our lives apart from God. And he lets the teacher deconstruct these. So the author thinks we spend most of our time investing energy and emotion in things that ultimately have no lasting meaning or significance. And he lets the teacher give us a hard lesson in reality. Okay, so if you want to watch, there's more to that video. You can just Google Ecclesiastes, read scripture, and you can watch that whole video. But the first hard lesson that the teacher is going to give us here this morning is that progress often escapes us. Progress often escapes us. So look at verse 5 here. It says, The sun rises and the sun sets, panting, it returns to the place where it rises. Gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind. And the wind returns and it cycles, and all the streams flow to the sea. Yet the sea is never full to the place where the streams flow again. There they flow again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, or the ear with hearing. And then again, you get down in verse 9. What has been done is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. It's really difficult to make meaningful progress as human beings, lasting progress. And, and you want to know that the thing actually that when I read these verses the first time, when I was studying for this message, the, the first thing honestly that came to mind when I was reading this, the, all the endlessness and what has been and what will be, the first thing, the first reality in my life that came to mind was, was the dishes. Because they are never really done, right? Every afternoon I come home and, and my job is to empty the dishwasher. And so I empty the dishwasher, I put everything away, and then I load it in the evening. And it, but it's always back the next day, right? Every day the dishes are there. That's never, it's never done. Meaningless, meaningless, right? I feel like actually paper plates are sort of like a raging protest against the hevel of doing, of doing dishes, right? Or what about fashion, um, you know, it, things come in, in cycles, right, in, in fashion, right? The kind of the 80s and 90s looks are coming back in, right? I, I hear, I don't know, I'm not, but the, the skinny jeans are coming out. I don't know. I don't know if these are too skinny now. Uh, I'm going to hang on to them because, you know, maybe they'll come back in into style, but fashion is cyclical, right? Or even things that are more difficult like war, right? We, as humans, we have been fighting one another, warring against one another for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And sure, you know, we have arrows that have been replaced by assault rifles, that we have cruise missiles uh, replacing catapults, but we're still fighting and killing one another, even if the technology by which we do that has advanced. Or think about relationships. And over thousands of years, we still have the same basic fundamental realities in romantic relationships. Sure, maybe we use Match.com instead of a matchmaker to find that person. But we still wrestle with things like infidelity and divorce and conflict. It's the same basic problems that people a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, five thousand years ago dealt with. That's why the Bible is so timely, even in our time. There's nothing new under the sun. People still fall in love, people still cheat, people still lust and hurt one another. Sure, maybe you get pornography from the internet instead of an adult bookstore, but the same issues plague us. So as hard as we try, we can't just make progress. 
I mean, maybe in our individual lives, we can grow and change and develop some better habits. But even that, right, at the end of our lives, all of that is just washed away by our own death. Whatever contributions to culture we may have made still don't make lasting change. So if you feel the despair uh, captured here by Munch in this painting, actually called Despair, then, then you're beginning to feel what life is like under the sun. And, and I think there's probably moments for all of us, maybe some of us are more melancholy by temperament, but uh, whether you are or not, I think there are all moments when we, we felt this way, where we feel the sense of, of despair or frustration in, in life. And one of the things I noticed about this painting, what I love about this, is actually, right, it's the same bridge that the scream was painted on. And both of them are painted under this kind of blood-red orange sun. The paintings are set under the sun. And they capture the sense of desperation and despair of what life is like outside the garden, what life is like under the sun. And the second sign that you're living under the sun, that you're living outside of the garden, is that satisfaction eludes you. So progress escapes you, but satisfaction eludes you. And you see this in in verse 8. I I read it briefly earlier, but listen to this again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. And we, we try and we try, but we're never really satisfied. And there's always another movie to watch, another place to visit, another thing to see, another podcast to listen to, another meal to, to enjoy. Like, no matter how hard we try, there's always something new to experience. And we can sort of get satisfaction for a moment, but then as soon as that moment passes, we're looking for something else to fill. We can't, keep to, can't seem to keep the satisfaction that we can get even momentarily. Now, the uh, author Arthur, Arthur Brooks recently penned an article uh, for The Atlantic. He also wrote a, a book called um, Strength to Strength, in which this research also is published. But Arthur Brooks, he was formerly the, the president of the American Enterprise Institute. He now teaches sociology at Harvard University. And he, in that article for The Atlantic, wrestles with this satisfaction problem. And he starts out by pointing uh, out, the highlight, in fact, that satisfaction is a universal problem, even for those who are highly successful. And he, he gives the example in the article of LeBron James. He writes this. He says, I remember once seeing LeBron James, the world's greatest basketball player, with a look of abject despair on his face. After his Cleveland Cavaliers lost the NBA championship to the Golden State Warriors, And this is Brooks' observation, that all of the world's wealth and accolades were like straw in that moment of loss. But this isn't just a modern or Western problem either, because maybe you would think, well, maybe it's just our materialistic, consumeristic culture that we deal with this. And actually, this is a universal human problem, because another example that Brooks gives in the article is of Abdel el-Rahman, who ruled as emir and caliph in 10th century Spain. So this is, you know, a thousand years ago. And at age 70... This caliph, this emir, he writes these words. He says, I have now reigned above 50 years in victory or peace, beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, respected by my allies. Riches, honors, power, and pleasure have waited on my call. And the payoff? I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot. 
and they amount to 14. So 70-year-old man, 50-year reign, he counts up, I've got 14 out of 70 years that were genuinely happy. Just 14 days of happy and 50 years of reigning as king. That is life under the sun, friends. And Brooks summarizes this work this way. Take a look. He says, it's so simple and its power is so deeply encoded within us. Give a three-year-old the French fry she is reaching for and see her satisfied expression. But then after a couple of seconds, watch the wanting return. And that's the actual problem, isn't it, he writes? The Stone song really should have been titled, I Can't Keep No Satisfaction. It's almost as if our brains are pre-programmed to prevent us from enjoying anything for very long. And so as a result, we worry and we strive and we're weary and we're anxious. And anxiety is actually the title of this painting from Edvard Munch here. Again, same bridge, same kind of blood red orange sky under the sun. Instead of this time the person kind of being downcast in despair, you see this crowd of people and you see the eyes of anxiety and worry. And again, probably in the past two years, and all of the uncertainty and change that we've had in, in almost every part of life, you've probably felt some of those emotions. Anxiety, worry, concern, an inability to keep hold of satisfaction for very long. And, you know, and we try so hard to understand why this is the case, but that understanding of why this is the case, even that often evades us, which is actually the third sign that we're looking at this morning. It's that not only does progress escape us and satisfaction elude us, but understanding evades you. You know you're living under the sun when understanding evades you. The teacher tells us this in verses 16 and 17, that he has done more study and researching on this than anyone else, and he still is coming up short. So look at verses 16 and 17 here. It says, I said to myself, I see I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow. And as knowledge increases, grief, grief increases also. These are what has happened. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases these verses in the message. He says this, he said to myself, I know more and I'm wiser than anyone before me in Jerusalem. I'm stockpiled wisdom and knowledge. And what I finally concluded is the so-called wisdom and knowledge is mindless and witless, nothing but spitting into the wind. It's not a great paraphrase by Peterson there. And it's often, right, you see this, that it's often those who are the most brilliant, the most intellectually gifted philosophers and scientists and researchers who many times experience deep despair and deep depression and deep frustration because the more that you learn, the more uh, that you begin to try to understand the world, often uh, the more frustration you arrive at. You feel that, that frustration, the grief that comes with deeper understanding. And the more you learn, often the less you seem to understand. Uh, one writer, uh, Audrey Niffinger, put it so succinctly in one of her novels. She says, everything seems simple until you think about it. And think about that. 
Everything seems simple until you think about it. This is not the case. One time you got a question, if you really start pressing in, if you really start researching, it's always more complicated, always more nuanced, always more complex than you first realize. And the greater your insight into the problem, the more you understand just how complex and intractable those problems often are. Which is actually what the teacher says in verse 18, right? For with much wisdom is much sorrow, and knowledge increases. As knowledge increases, grief increases also. And again, I think Edvard Munch captures this really well in his painting called Melancholy. It's a different setting this time, by the shore. But that sense of just of melancholy that comes when sometimes you're trying to figure out a problem, you're trying to figure out understanding this, and it just seems like there's not a great answer, there's not a good way forward. As knowledge increases, grief increases, often on the same track. This is life under the sun, friends, that progress escapes us, that satisfaction eludes us, and understanding evades us. So with that, uh, have a great Sunday. I hope you come back for six more weeks of this uh, in Ecclesiastes. No, uh, we're going we're gonna, um, to give some hope here this morning. Because the teacher is showing us what he wants us to see. Because remember, the teacher and the author of the book are, are different, right? So you have this, this author who's going to give us an interpretive framework at the end of the book, which we're going to give a little sneak preview of this morning. But you have the author and you have the teacher. What the teacher wants us to see is that an anonymous knowing that only relies on experience and observation, that is not a relational knowing of our Creator, that these are the conclusions you will come to. If all you're going to use is an anonymous reason, experiments, without a connection to a personal Creator, these are the conclusions you're going to come to. They are the conclusions we will come to in this life. But the authors, that's what the teacher wants to see, but the author wants us to remember there, again, there are two different voices here. There is another kind of knowing, a relational knowing that is possible. You can actually have a relational type of knowing that takes you beyond the sun. Because here's the main point of this message this morning. If you only take one thing away, if you only write down one thing, I hope it's this this morning. And that is that life under the sun is smoke. It is hevel. It is meaningless. But there is life over the sun. Life under the sun is smoke. But there is a life over the sun. And this is what we get a glimpse of in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7, using this imagery of light and sun. It says, light is sweet and is pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. And then later on in chapter 12, this is the very end of the book, we do, this is the author's conclusion. Again, this is after the teacher has said his piece, then the author circles back around and says this, when all has been heard, chapter 12, verse 13, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commandments, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Now, often the idea of judgment isn't particularly comforting to us, but this is really key. What God is saying is that He is going to be the one in the end. There's hope in this idea of judgment, that He will clear away the smoke, the hevel, and He will bring true justice and true meaning to life. 
that he will give the final evaluation of everything that's happened, whether it is really good or really bad in reality. That the sense of meaninglessness, of hevel, of smoke, of chasing after the wind, that one day that will all be swept away and God will give the final verdict. And this actually leads us then to the final Edvard Munch painting that I want to share with you this morning. And it's simply titled, The Sun. And scholars who study uh, Munch's work point out this. They point out that, that this, this picture of the sun does for Munch represent God, the source of all life. And what a contrast to the other paintings of his that we've looked at this morning, right? So to see how to live a wise life under the sun, outside the garden, that's the question we want to look at as we go through this series together. So as we're going to walk through this book in the coming weeks, we want to ask that question over and over again. What does it look like to live a good and wise life outside the garden, under the sun, as we await for the day when life over the sun will come to us again? So that's what we're going to be doing. You're, we're going to be looking at wisdom for how to live life well under the sun in the coming weeks. But I want to give you just sort of three practical helps this morning as we press into this new series. And the first one is this. Face the signs, don't ignore them. Face the signs, don't ignore them. We can't live a wise life if we just sort of put our heads into the sand and ignore the signs that we are living outside the garden. That that will actually set you up for a crisis of faith because eventually you won't be able to ignore them. Something will happen. A global pandemic, maybe a personal tragedy, a crisis, that something will come that will force you to reckon with the reality that we do live outside the garden. So don't ignore the signs. Recognize them for what they are. Know the world in which you live, that it, not all is ordered to work in the way it ought to right now, that we do live outside the garden. Let the teacher poke holes in our common responses, not only our common responses sometimes as Christians, but more the, the common responses of our culture to how to find meaning in this place. Ecclesiastes is a book that will help us deconstruct our culture rather than deconstructing our faith. So face the signs, don't ignore them. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Expect the frustration, don't be surprised by it. Expect the frustration, don't be surprised by it. If there's one thing that Ecclesiastes helps us with, is that it helps us to know that a wise life knows that everything isn't simple. That our best efforts will sometimes fail. That, that quote-unquote, good people will sometimes experience bad things. That sometimes things don't always appear on the surface to work according to the principles of wisdom and justice that are revealed in Proverbs. Ecclesiastes is a really good compliment to the book of Proverbs. If you read Proverbs, you kind of get the sense that if you just do the right things, good things will happen to you. Ecclesiastes says that is usually the case, often the case, but it's not always the case. So expect the frustration. Uh, Tim Mackey, who is one of the key leaders of the Bible Project. Uh, you heard his voice in that video. Uh, he writes this. He says, Ecclesiastes wants us to accept Hevel, accept that everything is out of our control, and then put our total trust in God, which frees us to enjoy life as we actually experience it. Let me say that again. The author of Ecclesiastes wants us to accept that everything is out of our control, and then find comfort as we put our trust in God, and then we can experience and enjoy life as we actually experience it. 
And this brings us to our final one this morning, this final help, and that is that live for something more. Don't forget that there is life over the sun. To live for something more. Live for something bigger than life under the sun. This is our only hope, right? That there is one over the sun who is bringing life and light to this world under the sun. And that that light is beginning to break in even now. This is the great hope that we celebrate in the season of Easter. Right? We, we celebrated Easter Sunday two weeks ago, but the, in the church kind of calendar, Easter is a season. And in the season of Easter, we recognize that the light of the sun, the light from over the sun, is breaking into our world under the sun even now. Our hope is that the sun who came from over the sun, so that we could be brought back into relationship with the one who makes life meaningful, even when nothing seems to make sense. Because, friends, Jesus doesn't make progress he promises to remake all things. Jesus doesn't just give you satisfaction. He himself is satisfaction, the fullness of joy in himself. Uh, Jesus doesn't just give you wisdom. He is wisdom, the logos, the one true word of God who has come to give you profound understanding. And on the cross, he felt the fullness of that scream of nature that we began with. He felt the fullness of of our despair and our anxiety and our melancholy. You know, the Scriptures describe Jesus as a man of sorrows. I think part of that is because if, if it's true, what Ecclesiastes says, that as wisdom increases and knowledge increases, that grief and sorrow increase as well, no one had greater understanding, greater wisdom than Jesus. No one understood more fully how it ought to be and therefore recognized the difference between what actually is in a fallen and broken world than him. He understands that sorrow, that despair, the melancholy. He bore all of it on the cross. But then he came bursting forth from the grave to forever rob death and the grave of its power to steal hope and meaning from us. That is the world that we live in. We do live under the sun. We do live outside of the garden. But... The sun has risen, and it's breaking in even now. And the way back into the presence of God has been opened through the cross. And one day, the world over the sun and the world under the sun will once again become one. And we will experience the satisfaction and meaning of that life together in a new heavens and a new earth. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have told us the truth about our experience in the Bible. That when we feel places of desperation, when we feel places of hopelessness or despair, that we can actually turn to a whole book of the Bible and have those experiences validated. But thank you that you have not left us without hope, but that you have come to rescue us, that you've come to give us light and life and hope and meaning. So I pray that even now you begin to do that work for us, that you would transform us, that you would heal us, that you would make us the kind of people who live good and wise lives, even as we're still outside the garden, pointing others to the hope that we have found over the sun. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is able to make that reality burst forth in our lives. Amen.